All right, so I've been looking for ways that we can push up the needle on that productivity number uh, so that we can grow our economy fast enough to pay for all the obligations that we have, like to our elderly and, you know, maybe even for universal basic income one day. Uh, a lot of people speculate that um, if we can run everything with machines and automate everything, then we might have enough money to do that. Um, and some people want us to start looking at it now. Um, so the problem is, you know, we need this to happen, I think, not universal basic income, but we need productivity gains to happen in the near term. And so, you know, sooner is better. And the productivity has been a bit stagnant for the last 10 years. Um, you, it, uh, as I said, it always hovers somewhere in the 1% range, but um, I think it's been going down ever so slightly for like the last 10 years. And uh, there's some arguments about whether that means anything and why that is. Um, some people think that when you add up all of the free stuff that you get from the internet, that it more than makes up for the decline in the productivity. Um, but that's a bit of a debate. And maybe that we're not measuring it right. So like when you add a new command to Microsoft Excel uh, or to PowerPoint, maybe you can make a new presentation and maybe that's hard to measure how much that worker's output increased because nobody's ever made a presentation that has uh, dot GIFs in it any, before. Um, but anyway, so what could help us out of this jam of the entitlements crisis? And the, the problem is a lot of these tech, techs, technologies, they seem like they're... 10 years off or more, um, you know, uh, so the one that I think unlikely, but, or it feels unlikely, but it actually could be the closest is quantum computing and quantum computing. So you guys know, um, not to get too technical and I probably wouldn't do a good job of it, but, uh, instead of transistors, these little, um, points of silicon on a chip, it's using actual electrons um, to compute and those electrons as you know can be in one of two states and so that's kind of like kind of like the one or the zero that um, that uh, normal computers have in binary code and they call that superposition by the way but basically um, quantum computers are really good at certain types of math problems the way I've heard described is they're good at statistical problems they're good at problems they give probabilistic answers and they're good at problems with continuous variables um, so and I probably couldn't do a good job of explaining all that math but basically the other thing about quantum is um, so you start off with one qubit which is an electron that can be uh, that you can compute with that can be turned to one of those two states that uh, and um, when, unlike a normal chip a normal computer chip when you add one new transistor let's say you had 10 transistors before and then you add one well that chip just got 10% faster but with quantum computing when you add one new qubit or electron the capacity doesn't go up by you know 10% it doubles each time you add a new qubit. And the reason this is really exciting is it means that quantum computers will get faster really quickly. They'll get faster, even faster than normal computers do. So you guys have heard of Moore's law, which is like a doubling of the um, transistor amount on a chip every two years, a doubling of the speed of a normal chip. Well, quantum, um, to give you an idea, so Google, uh, 
has a working quantum computer. They bought a company in, I think, around 2014 called D-Wave that has one of these computers work. And by the way, to do one of these computers to get the electrons to hold that state, you need uh, temperatures almost to sub-zero, or uh, sorry, absolute zero. And so it takes a lot of energy to cool something that much. But anyway, so Google bought one. And I think when they bought it in 2014, it had like one or two qubits. They just came out with a 22 qubit machine. So that means that that machine, at the types of math problems that quantum computers are fast at, is like many, 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 many times faster than that first machine. Well, by 2018, they plan to have, I believe, a 48 qubit chip, quantum computer rather, and so that will be even way faster. And it almost, funnily enough, corresponds to Moore's Law, where you get a doubling of the, you know, you're going from 22, actually getting more 22 to 48 in two years. Actually, it's even faster because the 22 machine just came out this year and they want to have the 48 qubit machine by next year, 2018. So that's more than doubling within one year. So it's way faster than Moore's Law. And um, so the question is, so like, why does this matter? Why do I think this could up productivity? And the reason is that these quantum computers, they're not good at everything right now. They're only good at certain types of math problems, as I said, but some of the things they're good at, two key areas, the first area is called computational chemistry. And the reason is, so like when you view um, a molecule, there are tons of different positions that electrons can take on a molecule. And depending on the positions, they can change the properties of that chemical or substance completely. And so it takes a lot of computing power to be able to predict what this new chemical that you can make in a lab could actually do. Will it actually be valuable? So rather than making every chemical that you know you can, or substance that you know you can, man can generate, these computers can tell us more quickly which ones will actually have valuable properties like healing wounds or making drugs that, you know, make us less sick or making fertilizers that kill off more different types of pests so we can grow way more food. Um, and obviously, you know, we can't even envision right now all the ways that that could help us. But um, if you can go through all these permutations, you can fight cancer. Um, this, I'm not sure how closely this is related, but there's a program called Folding at Home. And Folding at Home is this little not-for-profit piece of software you run on your computer, and it allows you to contribute to cancer research when you're not using your computer. And the way it does that is this. Um, they want to know uh, how proteins, which are obviously the things that make up cells, uh, they want to know how those things uh, fold and combine with each other. And I forget why, but this is very important for, for fighting cancer. Well, um, folding at home uses your computer's processing power to go through all the different permutations that proteins could possibly fold, and then it reports back to this not-for-profit servers. Um, so that's a way to donate, and it takes electricity to do it. So be aware if you do it that you are donating. Well, quantum computers could conceivably make things like this uh, much faster. And um, they're working, you know, this is very early. We're going to need all new types of computer code to run these things. And I'm just now starting to learn about this stuff. But I can already envision scenarios where, like, particularly, like, you've seen how much our lives can improve from computer chips getting faster. I mean, used to be computers occupied whole rooms and only a few people had access to now they're in your pocket. 
to now we're talking about putting computers in your body to cure disease and things. Well, all of that is a result of computers getting faster and getting smaller. Well, with these quantum computers, if they're going to get faster even more quickly than the previous method of computer chips got faster, you can imagine progress is going to increase rapidly. So let's say we um, create new drugs more quickly now. Well, that's that many more people that aren't sick clogging hospitals. So productivity goes up or and they're back at work sooner. Productivity goes up. Another one would be, like I said, fertilizer. Now we're making so much more food. We don't know what to do with it. And um, little rant here. Um, I said, maybe we can finally get a good steak in an email to friends. Um, what I'm talking about is this is kind of interesting and it, to me at least. And it speaks to like the problem of having, you know, a world populace that grew for so long. Um, and that's this. In uh, from 2005 to 2007, I believe, the price of corn tripled, and it settled down to about double in like 2008, let's say. So uh, you know, within a few years, the price of corn doubled, and it stayed there. And the reason is this: um, in like a decade or two decades, um, we added two billion consumers to the global economy from China and India. So these are people that were not consuming global goods. They were not eating a lot of steak. They were not eating as much grain. And we added them and they want those things now. And they import them. Um, apparently China is big into steak. And even if they're just a little bit, even if they don't like as much as us, they have four times our population. Um, and then India, I'm sure some of them enjoy meat. Um, I know it's a little less common there. I don't know the exact numbers. But also, I know they eat grain. And here's why meat is also a big problem. Um, cattle are fed with grain. So um, around that time, you may have noticed that a lot of restaurants started cutting back. And a lot of people blame the housing crisis and stuff. And that was going on too. But I think the roots of it started before that. So back then... I saw restaurants that I like to go through, they all of a sudden had a new cut of steak that they were serving and it was worse. Or they were serving smaller hamburgers. My favorite, I mean, Copper Monkey before they closed, that hamburger was half the size of what it was, you know, a few years ago. Um, and it wasn't just because they were closing because every place in my town is like that. Mothers, etc. cetera. Um, uh, you know, there's reports of people who sell breakfast cereal and, and crackers and chips and things that the boxes were then 16% lighter and it hasn't gone up. And the reason is the demand for food skyrocketed. Now, when you consider we added 2 billion people to the global food market, we're actually doing pretty good. Um, and there were, if, if it feels like we slowed down, there were probably huge advancements during that time that I'm not even aware of. But we need that stuff. Um, and quantum could help us do it because I don't even know all the ways. The first thing that occurred to me was fertilizer, but there's probably tons of ways. Um, here's another thing people talk a lot about with is automation, um, particularly AI. Uh, AI is still very early. I don't actually know how quickly that could improve our productivity. And I don't think anybody knows. I feel like we've been using it all this time. I feel like we've been using big data. I mean, I've heard about big data startups that using Excel spreadsheets in the 80s, um, but or databases at least. But anyway, um, so I kind of want to skip that. I might do something on AI later for another podcast. Another one that could cause our productivity to shoot up um, would be... Uh, 
Um, oh, and by the way, the second area that quantum computers are great for is machine learning. Uh, and by the way, machine learning, machine learning is like uh, a type of artificial intelligence. The, the thing I want to say about artificial intelligence in general, guys, is the type of artificial intelligence we have now is not creativity. It's not a thinking machine. What it is is it's, you give it tons of data and it finds the correlations in the data for you and it uses that to build a better algorithm to give you a better answer. So it's like Google knows that 50 million people searched for Amazon and that most of them, or pants Amazon, let's say, and most of them picked this. So it now knows people who search for pants are probably looking for Amazon and vice versa to this percent, etc. So, um, and I'm not a professional of that either, but that's, that's what I've learned about it. Before I do that, I want to say one more thing on quantum computing. I mentioned to an engineer the other day that Google has a 48 qubit quantum computer and his response is, oh, well, all bets are off then. Uh, and what he meant was, you know, at the point that we reach that, there's no telling what we'll be able to do with a quantum computer. And uh, by the way, um, it's actually, they'll have 48 qubits next year. Today they have 22. Anyway, 50 qubits is the point at which uh, a quantum computer is faster than all traditional computers that we have for the types of math problems that quantum computers are good at. So anyway, the first thing that could drastically raise productivity, in my opinion, is quantum computing. Another technology that could do it is fusion, and or cheap energy in general. Fusion would be one way of doing that, and we've made a lot of progress on it. I'm always reading new stories about it. We're always hitting new temperatures of it. Um, just for people who are haven't heard of it before, um, fusion is what the sun does. Uh, nuclear power right, power right now is called fission, and that's where we're breaking atoms apart. Fusion is what the sun does, where it combines atoms, and when you fuse them together, it takes a tremendous amount of heat to do that, and I think maybe pressure, at least in the sun, we there's pressure that helps. Um, but anyway, uh, the uh, when you do that energy is released and it's even more energy that's released when you break atoms apart so this would make energy uh, you know nuclear is already a cheap form of energy but fusion would be even way cheaper than that because the raw fuel that we need I think hydrogen I think it's abundant um, and so it would basically be like having a Sun on earth um, in some form and uh, there's a startup in the UK actually that I've been following I think it's called True Power or True Fusion, but um, just Google UK Fusion Startup, and they just had a breakthrough. They're using a new form of reactor called a Stellarator, um, and there are other places that have Stellarators, but I think uh, the UK's is the first private one. So this is a private company doing Fusion, guys. It's, that's pretty freaking awesome, and they have some really... Um, you know, aggressive timetables. What a Stellarator does, what makes it neat is, okay, so you need, the fusion is so hot. It's as hot as the sun. Um, it's so hot, the only thing that can contain it are very strong magnetic fields. Well, those magnetic fields, they need a lot of power, they need complex machinery, that machinery breaks under all that stress and it needs to be repaired. So I believe the Stellarator is a very, it's like a complex design. It looks like a, I think it looks like a picture, an onion ring made out of tubes, but with all these really complex crenellations and, and tubing. Um, this complex design allows it to maintain these magnetic fields more easily and it needs a lot less repairs. So that'll make it less um, expensive to do. 
And I think we're just now reaching the point. So fusion right now, it takes a lot of energy to start the reaction. And they can only hold this reaction for like seconds. And I think in some cases, minutes. Um, but we're just now reaching the point where that reaction costs uh, less energy to start than the amount of energy it creates. And that's pretty freaking awesome. Because if you just think about it, um, you know, so much of what we do requires energy and not just heating your home or powering your car or cooking your food, but like to make all the things that you get, that you buy, use every day, create, uh, requires energy. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised. I have never read a stat on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if like 30 to 50% of household costs are just energy costs. So if you have energy that's drastically cheaper, imagine what else you could do with 30 to 50% more money. Um, you know, in an ideal scenario. And um, also, uh, it opens up new possibilities. One really exciting one I've heard is desalinization plants. So right now, desalinization of water to make it drinkable or usable for humans takes a lot of power. Well, with fusion, it's cheap. And that's great. Or it would be. And that is great because uh, there's a lot of the world that's susceptible to drought. Um, I read something that the U.S. is actually, you know, we have the most, or we have a lot of the world's fresh water um, because of the Great Lakes. So we, you know, we suffer from droughts, but other places suffer much worse, particularly the third world. So fusion could really help save lives and just make life a lot better for a lot of people. I remember when I was a kid, we played the game SimCity uh, 2000, I think, or something like that in school. It was like the one game we were allowed to play in computer lab. And the top end technology that you could get was fusion power plants. And when you got that, I mean, it made your city run so much better and, and more profitable. So ideally, that's how it'll play out in the real world. So quantum computing could drastically increase productivity. Fusion could do it. I think AI could help and it could probably do it, but I want to do a different podcast on that. The last one might be might be uh, self-driving cars and cheap self-driving cars and transportation. And, uh, you know, the reason I say that is apparently 80% of your Uber fees right now go to paying the driver. So if you eliminate the driver, now actually I think what happens is the driver has to turn around and use a lot of that money to go into other things like maintenance of the car and gas, etc. So, but let's say that that driver fee, let's say it's 50%, 40%, it's a significant chunk that we can just get rid of with the self-driving car. Another thing that goes away with self-driving cars, and, and so then the cost of that Uber becomes much cheaper. Another thing that goes away is well, at least for us, for the consumer, is insurance. There might still be insurance with self-driving cars, and your ticket, some of your ticket would have to go to pay for that. The corporations that run the self-driving car fleet will probably pay that price. But the great thing is self-driving cars are already much safer. And so that means, you know, ostensibly less accidents, so insurance costs less. And if it's managed at that high level, there might be some also savings there, you know. But anyway, um, to show you that self-driving cars uh, are safer, Tesla has limited forms. I mean, they have the best shipping form of self-driving that I'm aware of. Um, but there's four levels of self-driving 
uh, they call it level four autonomy is the highest. And Tesla's like, I think they might have level three working in prototype or in beta with them. Nobody has level four yet that I'm aware of or claims to at least yet. They may have it privately. Um, and level four would be like driving as well as a human in all the different situations we drive in. Tesla recommends that their self-driving feature only be used in, um, in on the highway. And uh, I think you can get away with using it in some other situations, but they don't recommend doing that. And it's dangerous because just in a little bit outside of my town, in the little town of Wilson here in Florida, was where the first self-driving death occurred. A guy was uh, taking a left turn under self-driving in his Tesla, and he wasn't paying attention because he was watching a portable DVD player, and he ran into a truck. Now, they've since made fixes, and he was using it. you got to remember he was using it in a situation where he wasn't supposed to be using it. And I know Tesla, hopefully they're doing more than even I know about to try to stop stuff like that. But just so far, when they enabled this stuff, yes, there was a fatality, but the number of accidents has already gone down. Tesla tracks all this stuff meticulously, and they make it all publicly available. And... uh, People, you've probably seen on Facebook videos of people driving Teslas and the Tesla figures out and starts slowing the car down before an accident has even occurred. Because the Tesla, because of algorithms, um, programming basically, it knows and can predict to some degree when accidents are going to occur and it can react faster than you. Machines have faster reaction times than us. So that's only going to get better. This is the early days. This is like the first version of this stuff you know, you know, maybe second or third, but this is early days. It's only going to get better from here. So it's great news. So cheap transportation, I don't know if it'll help the elderly per se, but that frees up our money to go to other things that we love. Maybe it frees it to going to pay for, um, you know, just for the healthcare burden of it all. But anyway, um, that would be a great thing. So I guess the the things that I think could drastically increase our productivity as a nation and help us pay for the entitlements crisis are uh, quantum computing, cheap energy in the form of fusion, maybe solar panels. I forgot to talk about that. We also need cheaper lithium-ion batteries. The batteries that self-driving cars use, or sorry, electric cars use, are still pretty expensive. Um, and they only get better at a, at a, not a slow rate. It's like 7% a year or something, but it still, it needs to be, it might be like 15, but it needs to be better than that. And AI, which I'm going to do a separate podcast on, um, and maybe cheap transportation. So I guess it's four areas that I think all of these things, companies are moving forward on these things all the time. It was self-driving cars. It feels like it's close. I still think that that might be 10 years off. You know, and it's not just the technology, but there's regulatory issues. There's also, you know, getting these things into people's hands. You know, is the first batch of these things going to be cars people people sell you? How soon can a company like Uber actually start a taxi service? How soon before they can do the whole nation, etc.? You know, how long before it's profitable in the suburbs where people live further away? You know, taxis are cost-effective in cities, but you really are going to need that cheap energy for it to be cost-effective to do self-driving. Uh, well, maybe you won't want, not with the driverless fee, but then you got to build these depots everywhere. Not when you eliminate the, the human driver's fee, or, sorry about that. But then you got to create these driverless depots because the car, you know, if it's driving from, from far away, that's not cost effective. So it's going to take some time to roll out. It'll come, 
Um, but I just don't know, and I just don't know which of these technologies seems first. Quantum seems closer right now um, because of that Google announcement. But who knows? I guess it's kind of exciting knowing that there's a few things out there could, that could drastically improve our quality of life. Um, so all of that means, you know, I, I'm getting more and more optimistic that first world nations are not going to default. Some may still probably will. But to take this back to Bitcoin, so let's say it doesn't happen. That's a, that eliminates like the best case for Bitcoin, which is that it replaces government currencies. At least maybe it does it someday, but not anytime soon. Um, now, Bitcoin could still be very valuable because um, it could take the place of gold. Uh, gold just had a couple record decades or at least a record 15 years. And it's very valuable because people were worried about government debt. Well, Bitcoin, you know, it's easier to transact in Bitcoin because it's portable, so to speak. You know, you're not going to take a bar of gold someplace, but you might take use your phone to pay for something. So people who are worried about government debt uh, and like currencies that aren't dilutable, that are finite, they might switch to Bitcoin. And that would be great. Um, but uh, so that'll still make it very valuable. And Bitcoin will probably still be one of the best, if not the best investment of the next 10 years. I think there's a very good chance it becomes the best investment of the next 10 years or longer. But the problem, here's the last problem with investing in Bitcoin and why this is so difficult to predict. You don't know if Bitcoin is MySpace or if it's the Facebook of all this. There are other cryptocurrencies and you don't know which one will win. Um, Bitcoin right now, it has something going for it called network effects, which I've talked about before. And that's when you have to use something because other people use it. So right now, people, even if they may like another currency, Bitcoin is the one that most uh, vendors, and merchants and uh, payment processors support right now. They don't support some of these other coins, even though these other coins might be technically better with more features, more secure, more private. So maybe network effects are even stronger when they apply to currencies. Um, because with a currency, sometimes all you need is good enough. You know, can I buy the thing or can I not buy the thing with it? Maybe that's the chief criteria and all anybody will care about. But you know, there's some new currencies coming out that are pretty interesting. Everybody's heard about Ethereum. I might talk about that in another podcast. But Ethereum is a, uh, a cryptocurrency that's designed to be able to build apps with. And then there's one that I'm looking into now called Monero. And Monero is taking off with people online who like to buy things privately, you know, honestly, that might be illegal, like drugs, unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depending on your opinion or, you know, what they're using it for. But anyway, this currency has extra protection on your identity. Bitcoin um, is quasi-private, but it's not totally private. And Monero has this extra encryption on your identity, and they say Monero is truly private. Um, but anyway, uh, so that's something to look at. And maybe you want to take a little bit of money and speculate on these things. But I'm hesitant to tell someone, I would never tell anybody, take all your money and put it into Bitcoin. Because even if these things do well, you know, take maybe take some of the money you have and spread it out between a couple of the cryptocurrencies that you're going to speculate on. Um, the saying they say is don't, you know, don't bet anything you're not willing to lose. But, you know, Warren Buffett's uh, first rule of investing is uh, don't lose money. So technically, you're not willing to lose any of it. I know I'm not. Um, so one of the things I told people, particularly back when Bitcoin was just like a few hundred dollars, was just buy one of them. But you know what? Um, if you're willing to, sp they, a lot of financial advisors give the advice, 
uh, speculate, take risks with maybe five to 15% of your money. So if you have it, you might want to put, you know, it doesn't matter if Bitcoin's going to skyrocket. That means if you put in, if you only put in 200, that could still skyrocket. So you may want to think about doing it, but I'm hesitant to tell anybody, you know, take your nest egg, take everything out of the stock market. Because here's the other thing. If any of these technologies that I mentioned takes off anytime soon, the stock market is just going to continue kicking butt. The stock market has had a record um, seven years. Um, we're, you know, we're we're in the second longest bull market ever. And a bull market is a period of continual growth in the stock market. So if one and if one of these technologies takes off, and it, if it takes off to the degree that we've talked about, um, the stock market is going to continue to be a good investment. And I like American stocks because American corporations are the most innovative. They're doing new things every day. You know, globalization has happened, but for a lot of American companies do all their business abroad. Two thirds of Apple, I think it's like 70% now of Apple's business comes from overseas. So when you buy American companies, you technically are diversifying across nations or, or kind of are. Um, anyway, uh, so I think I'm going to call it quits for now. This podcast is something I'm doing it just for fun right now, but I am going to play with things and as ideas occur to me and, you know, hopefully I'll improve things. If you have suggestions, I appreciate them. I'll do them as I can do them. This is just right now it's a hobby. So I really appreciate your support and I appreciate you listening and I hope you're having fun and feel free to ask me or to talk about anything on Facebook or email or what have you. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye.